0: Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. This season, we're discussing how the Bible speaks to Asian American biblical scholars and how the church shapes and informs their scholarship. I'm Jeanette Oak, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. And welcome to today's episode of Centering. My name is Jeanette Oak, and I am Associate Professor of New Testament here at Fuller Seminary. And for you who are joining us for the first time, welcome. So glad you're here. Centering is the Asian American Christian podcast, where we host conversations related to all things Asian American and what it means to live out the Asian American Christian faith. Our season eight is focused on the role of the Bible. And I'm really excited about this because of course, Fuller cares about the role of the Bible, But we haven't really talked about it specifically from the perspective of Asian American biblical scholars and how their work is shaped by and for the church. You know, sometimes people wonder why we need biblical experts. How does their expertise reach us? It seems sometimes far away from the -the on-the-ground work of ministry. Uh, And so how does the work and interpretations of biblical scholars impact the churches? view of God and interpretation of scripture. And so it's no surprise that I've asked Dr. Gail A. Yee to be a guest. Gail has so much to say on this topic, but before I go on, let me first introduce her to y'all. So Gail A. Yee is Nancy W. King Professor of Biblical Studies Emerita at Episcopal Divinity School. She has had an illustrious and impactful career as a Hebrew Bible scholar and professor for over 40 years. In addition to countless articles and book chapters, Gail is the author of the Hebrew Bible, Feminist and Intersectional Perspectives, published in 2018 by Fortress, Poor Banished Children of Eve, Women as Evil in the Hebrew Bible, Jewish Feast in the Gospel of John, Composition and Tradition in the Book of Hosea, a commentary on the Book of Hosea, and so many more things. Oh, she's edited Judges and Method, New Approaches in Biblical Studies. She serves as co-editor for texts at Context Series for Fortress Press, and her most recent book is called Towards an Asian-American Hermeneutics, an intersectional anthology just published in 2021 by Cascade. The book is right here on my desk, by the way, Gail. <laughs> in 2019, Gail was president of the Society of Biblical Literature. She was the first Asian-American woman honored uh, to, to serve in this capacity. She was awarded an honorary doctorate at the Divinity of divinity from Virginia Theological Seminary in 2020. And she lives at Pilgrim Place, which is in Claremont, California. It's a retirement community of social activists and many amazing folks where I think it's safe to say Gail is the life of the party. <laughs> okay. And I know I'm not supposed to give too long an intro because it's it can get boring for readers or listeners, but I have to say more because you have so had such a long career, <laughs> such a rich career. I'm just going to go on a little more. Gail has been a pioneering force in Asian American biblical hermeneutics and post-colonial criticism and feminist interpretation of the Hebrew Bible. She has mentored countless students and scholars in biblical studies, myself included. Her commitments to investing in Pacific Asian and North American Asian women in theology and ministry has influenced multiple generations of leaders. And Gail is so funny, so down-to-earth and approachable, humbling and ex- inspiring and disarming. And and I'm just gonna say from the get-go that Gail, you are an academic hero of mine and I and one of my favorite eating buddies.
1: <laughs> so thank, In some you- forever. <laughs> thank
0: you so much for uh, joining me on Centering today. It's an honor and a pleasure.
1: Thank you, thank you so much.
0: So Gail, how are you? What have you been up to lately?
1: Well, I just got back from a two week trip to Machu Picchu and the Galapagos. And then I've been in quarantine here the, for about 5 days, so I'm getting out of quarantine and yeah. So I I got a little infection before I, you know, during quarantine and uh so the, I must have got it from there, but I'm I'm fine right now. So, oh gosh. Well, I think it seems like the weather and the timing wasn't too crowded. Uh, no
0: the weather was good. The cover was well. Timing.
1: Actually, Galapagos. It was rainy, cold, and wet. So, I I mean, what can I say? Well, right. And I saw. Is that where you, the seal?
0: You you encountered the seals? Was the that
1: seals, mean- yeah, and the iguanas and the blue-footed boobies, and it was just a wonderful trip. Can you just give us a peek
0: into your writing and research these days? What what have you been up to? What biblical texts have been exciting you?
1: Oh, okay, well, all right. I just finished an exciting and very challenging essay for the Oxford Handbook of Wealth and Poverty in the Biblical World. And my essay was on the prophets and the political economy of uh, ancient Israel. So, I mean, as you might know, I mean, I'm very concerned about poverty and inequality in today's world and how structures of economic inequality is found in the biblical text. And I worked on two, two sets of prophets, Elijah and Elisha in that section of the Bible known as the former prophets or the historical books, and then the prophet Amos. Mm-hmm. Now, just like today's world, ancient Israel was composed of the haves and the have-nots. The haves in ancient Israel was only a tiny portion of the population, just like it is now. The king in ancient Israel and his ruling elites heavily taxed and exploited the farmers and villagers who worked the land. I mean, the major portion of Israel's economy was in farming and an agrarian economic base. And the prophets primarily appear in ancient Israel during the time when the monarchy developed. I and when did the prophets come on the scene? When the king comes on the scene, all right? Mm-hmm. Because it's these kings and his ruling elites, his ha- haves that mm-hmm. will exploit the have-nots, the, the farmers and the villagers. So that's what I'm working on now. Oh, that's what I did work on. Yes, that's what I did work on. Uh, but I, I just finished doing it. And Congrats
0: on that's, finishing that, that chapter. Oh, you're- you're, you're to that you're, as well.
1: Oh, you're in that volume too. Well, all righty. I'll be prepared to talk about it soon. Okay, that's all right. Okay <laughs> but Gail, you talked about,
0: um, just to follow up for our listeners. So when the when there's the king is leading, that's when the prophets comes up. And come has on the a-
1: scene. He When they come on the scene, come on the, the scene. institution of prophecy comes on the scene uh-huh. during the time of the monarchy. And primarily because you have this exploitation and oppression of the agrarian economic base.
0: Yes, and even Israel's kings are susceptible to the abuse and
1: exploitation. Of course. Yes, they are.
0: And so would you say then, so, when, so the role of the prophet, uh, the biblical prophet, when people talk about prophetic preaching or prophetic voice today, and you're studying ancient Israel and the role of the prophet, how do you bridge that kind of language and
1: those concepts? Well, mostly people have this misunderstanding that the prophets were fortune tellers, all right? And I, I mean, that you think of, you know, a, a disheveled person holding a sign, repent, the end is near. Well, that's not what the prophet, the prophets were social analysts. I mean, the, uh, most of them came from the upper classes, basically and they developed a social conscience. They saw the oppression that was going on among the people, and th- they knew that if you disrupt the, uh, the economic base of the nation, that nation is going to fall, which it, of course, eventually did. Okay, so they were social analysts. They read the sign of the times. I mean, you can't talk about it, but they read This the social situation of the times, and leveled a critique against those that were not following God's will, God's law, and condemned that the actions of the king and his ruling elite. Mm. Would you say that this has impacted at all your view of the role of the
0: biblical scholar?
1: Oh, it certainly does. All right, it certainly does. You were talking about me being a um, a woman warrior. All right. And I would find myself, let's say, with respect to the church Mm -hmm. and how my biblical interpretation affects my own work among the churches is that I see my involvement with the church and religious communities as discomforting the comfortable. Mm -hmm. All right. And of course, I believe in charitable giving, but I want to move beyond charity to develop a critical consciousness in the churches. I want them, I want congregations to understand the social and economic structures that create poverty and inequality in our society, all right? Um, Helping the church understand that, understand the roles of racism and sexism, what, what they play in the creation of poverty and inequality. I mean, it's very much interconnected. And I have been able to give lectures in church settings, explaining how poverty was created in ancient Israel, and to make parallels in today's very different structures of global capitalism. Well, uh, you
0: mentioned the woman warrior uh, reference, and I'm going to quote that for listeners who might not know what we're referring referring to. So uh, when you were interviewed for Inheritance Magazine a little while ago, you were quoted as saying, as a biblical scholar, I approached my interpretation of the biblical text rather like a woman warrior and asking the ethical question,
1: whom does my interpretation help and whom does it hurt? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up as a Roman Catholic, okay? And my Roman Catholicism really differentiates me from a lot of the biblical scholars that I know who are primarily um, Protestant and sometimes evangelical Protestants, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a Roman Catholic, I did not grow up with the Bible at all, all right? I mean, it was primarily, you know, the sacraments and, um, you know, the Eucharist and, and the Mass, which is very important for me. I mean, that's a, that incarnational theology, which is very much a part of Roman Catholicism, is is very much a part of me and so I was not really bound by doctrinal issues of interpretation. I, I do believe the Bible is the word of God but I definitely believe that it's also the word words of men all right very much so. I mean I have no problem of seeing the sexism, the racism, the violence, the ethnocentrism the classism mm-hmm. uh, the um, at home abhorrence of the other in the Hebrew Bible, and I will criticize that, all right? And when I interpret the text, again, I'm not bound by you know doctrinal issues. I interpret the text thinking, well, whom does my interpretation help? Does it help the poor? Does it help the marginalized? Does it help women, all right? And whom does it hurt? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen how the biblical texts have hurt the LGBT community, how it uplifts the prosperity gospel and for the wealthy. I've seen how people hide behind the Bible, you know, uh, instead of confronting social realities. So in that sense, when I interpret the Bible, I see, well, whom does my interpretation help? And whom does it hurt? In that sense, Let's say, for example, those who think the Bible condemns LGBTQ, I would say, you know, that's not the way I read the Bible. In fact, if I read the Bible very carefully, that is not the issue in, let's say, for example, Genesis 19 regarding the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Of course, I think it's a matter of hospitality. That's what I mean when I talk about, when I interpret the Bible, when I I read this biblical text. Whom does it help? Who's, whom does my interpretation help? And whom does it, all right, not hurt, but discomfort, resist against, rattle, rock the boat, okay? So that that's what I mean by that.
0: Yeah. No, thank
1: you for unpacking
0: that. So, Gail, you are a third generation Chinese American from Chicago, correct? hmm And you were the oldest of, what, how many siblings was it?
1: Uh, 12, yeah. 12. 12
0: siblings. So you're the oldest of 12 and you were, you were raised Catholic,
1: Yes, you lived in the slums of Chicago, would that be fair to yes. say? Basically, yes, Blackstone Ranger territory, for the first 10 years of my life. I mean, it was mostly, my friends were primarily blacks than Puerto Rican. So uh-huh. I really did not have much contact with, with white people, basically. So, so can you tell us how you became a biblical scholar? Okay, well I was a pre-med in college. I mean, okay. I, I had worked in hospitals, little company of Mary Hospital in Oakland, Illinois, and I was a dietary aide and I was a candy striper first and a dietary oh. aide and a nurse's aide, and thought I should go into pre-med and which I did at Loyola University, but I could not pass a math course. <laughs> all right. I mean, I withdrew from algebra three times before I flunked out. Now, because I was getting A's in my English literature course, I mean, I, I had no idea, but evidently I was. Okay. Um, I ended up as an English major. I mean, because evidently I was good at interpreting ri- written texts. And During my senior year of college at Loyola, I had a religious experience at a Tese retreat. And I ended up in the first U.S. contingent, contingent of young people to go to France and attend Tizé's Council of Youth. Okay, I was one of the first, I was with a whole bunch of African-Americans, okay? Now, when I returned, I was full of the spirit when I returned and I started leading Catholic Charismatic Prayer Meetings at Loyola. And while I was doing that, one of the guys, one of the guys stood up and said I shouldn't be leading Uh, The the meeting, because it says in the Bible that women can't be leaders. Well, of course, I never read any, you know, I really never read the Bible. And I was stumped. I didn't know that. And uh, now at the time, I was the secretary of the dean and faculty members. This is at Loyola. I was secretary Mm -hmm. of the dean at Loyola. and Faculty members would come sit near my desk desk while they waited for their appointments with the dean. And so there was one, this one Jesuit priest who was a faculty member came in. And so I says to him, I mean, does it really say in the Bible that women can't leave prayer meeting? Mm-hmm. And he replied, you need to get a master's in theology. And so he gave me an application. I applied. I got a full scholarship and a stipend. All right. And I chose New Testament as a concentration because I was good with texts. Okay? And especially when this guy tells me yeah. that, you know, I mean, I wanted to read where that was. Mm-hmm. And I was five years in New Testament, my doctoral studies in Toronto, when I saw the light, and I switched over to Hebrew Bible to Old Testament. So that's basically how I ended up uh, becoming a biblical scholar. So in five years into
0: it, you decided you wanted to go? Yeah,
1: to- I, what happened was, the Hebrew Bible. you know, as a US student, I really couldn't, scholarships in Canada. I was in Canada. But I was able to be part of a, a grant project done by a, a New Testament guy at York University. And it was a uh, called the Parables Project. And what this guy did was get uh, all these graduate students in Latin literature and Greek literature. And I was the one that read the Jewish literature, ah. looking for a pair of uh, analogs to Jesus's parables. So I read the New Old Testament for the first time in my life, the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, the uh, Midrashim, the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds, the Toseftas. You know all this Jewish literature and. It was because reading this stuff i said gee this is marvelous stuff and i was really getting bored thinking about a dissertation in new testament that i decided to switch over to old testament and that's how are you telling me you read all that literature in one semester no it was over at least a year but it was at least a year And maybe it was two years because it did provide me money to stay on. I mean, I was nine years in Toronto doing my doctoral studies. So, yes, I did read all that. So the text, your immersion, you you got immersed into in Jewish lit. Yeah, I mean, and it was a big project. I mean, I would go and Xerox these texts, put it on a card, you know, put it where it was from. So what's, you know, I was doing it for, uh, yeah, over at least two years, I think. Were
0: there other people who were like critical mentors in that journey? Because you said you grew up in Chicago, oh. mostly around Puerto Ricans and African-Americans. You didn't hang around white people as a kid, but I'm sure that changed in your educational journey.
1: You mean, were there mentors? I mean, in my graduate studies, yeah, could you it was, tell us- there was really no mentors. I mean, it was primarily... The historical critical method. I mean, I was really immersed in that. And actually, I will have to say that I'm indebted to knowing the historical Mm -hmm. critical method because it's, you know, very precise, very rigorous. But the value neutral part, I just have to throw that out. All right. Because as an interpreter, I interpret as a woman, I interpret as an Asian American. So during my graduate studies, there was no. I mean, it was primarily men. However, there were a couple women students in Bible that we got together with. I mean, Mary Rose D'Angelo was one for in New Testament, then Marion Taylor uh, in Old Testament, and you know, so there were a bunch of us that would get together and commiserate, basically. But I actually did not become a feminist until. I got my first job at University of St. Thomas. It was the College of St. Thomas at the time. And I started hanging out with the English department, Hmm. which was very, I mean, my department, I was the first woman in my department of all priests who only did their masters in theology. All right. So a couple did their their doctorate. But in the English department. But in the English department, they all had their doctorates. They all interpreted texts in very exciting ways. And one of the um, faculty members, Brenda Powell in the English department, asked me if I would teach a course on women in theology and literature. Mm-hmm. And of course, I never really read feminist literature before, but I started reading you know, some of the women, the feminist liter- literary women. And then I had to start reading feminist theology and Bible during that time and became very much interested in what was going on in feminist interpretation of the Bible. And then the woman who was chair of the Women in the Biblical World section at the SBL lived in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities. And she asked me to come on board for that section. And I eventually became chair of that section Mm-hmm. Uh, coach, actually co-chair with her and then became chair of that section. So of course, I had to start reading, you know, more and more feminist literature. And then I also became chair of the women's studies of the uh, Associated Colleges of the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. They didn't have enough faculty to have a department of women's studies. So what the colleges did was have uh, different faculty members pull their courses into this program, to which I directed uh, the Associated Colleges of Twin Cities, and we were able to have a women's studies major from mm. colleges such as uh, McAllister, Hamlin, College of St. Catherine, Augsburg College, and, and St. Thomas. All of those colleges contributed some sort of women's studies courses for this women's studies major. So that's how I, I became very much involved in feminism. All right. Yeah. I mean, that was in the late 80s, early 90s.
0: Well, can I just say one thing? So, a couple okay. of things
1: before, um, as I'm listening to you, with your
0: delving into Jewish literature and delving into feminist studies with. The, you know your commiseration with the english department and being asked to teach a course some of your your foray into these huge themes in your work have come out of being asked well, to do stuff that you weren't planning to do initially
1: right basically yes yes the earliest i would say biblical stuff that i was able to do was in the book of proverbs all right i mean even during my graduate st- uh, studies i did an analysis of Proverbs 8 where it was the creation of woman wisdom mm-hmm. and that was one of the first publications that I did in graduate school in desire for the Old Testament like a vision shop this you know big high mucky muck german <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but I mean, it wasn't a feminist thing, yeah. but at least it it dealt with women. So right. then I went back into Proverbs and I noticed that there was this dichotomy between woman wisdom and the foreign woman. Mm-hmm. So I I did something for that. And I can't remember where that was published. But I, also, I do know that because I was chairing women in the, in the biblical world for Society of Biblical Literature, Athalia Brenner sat behind me, passed me a note and says, I want to republish my, oh, I can't even remember the name of the, the uh, oh, the, it was the Isha Zara, the, the foreign woman okay. in, in the biblical, the Isha Zara. She wanted to publish that in this new series called The Feminist Companion yes. to the Bible. Okay. Yes. And so I republished that there with Athalia, but then Athalia and I became very good friends. And so, you know, I'm not sure if your readers knew about Athalia Brenner, but she was one of the foremost Israeli feminist biblical Mm -hmm. scholars. She did a thesis on the ancient Israelite women from a literary and sociological perspective. That was her dissertation. And she published it, and they wouldn't give her tenure for that book because feminism was going nowhere. And she, Lost her job, I think it was Tel Aviv, but got a job in Amsterdam and okay. started this feminist companion to the Old Testament. From there, it just blossomed. I think there's also a feminist companion to the New Testament yes. as uh-huh. well. All right. So, I mean, that was her baby. And she also co chaired with me, Women in the Biblical World section at the SBL. And she and I are also co-editors of Texts at context. We still have kept that that friendship for oh, almost twenty years now uh, and mm-hmm. very much enjoy that friendship. I think it's uh, fair to
0: say that you're you're not just theoretically doing feminist work. You help forge feminist biblical scholarship as a Hebrew Bible scholar, um, among others who are doing the same thing. Okay. Thank
1: you yes. Hey.
0: I'm Daniel Lee, the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Asian American Center. I hope you've been enjoying Centering. Our vision is to provide substantive conversations on topics that really matter to the Asian American Christian community and to others who care about us. This work is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Your contributions help cover the production and editing of this podcast and continue to affirm that this work is important to our community. To support centering, please visit fuller.edu giveaac. Again, that link is fuller.edu giveaac. Thank you for listening.
1: Another part of the story, again, going into the 90s, SBL developed a committee on racial ethnic minorities in the profession. <laughs> and Kurem. And I was one of the founding members of that with me, Randall Bailey, Fernando Segovia, and Vincent Winbush. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. And then a guy named Henry Sun, who's no longer in the profession. He was Asian American. So you had the Black African American, you had the two African Americans, Latin, Latinx with Fernando, mm-hmm. Henry Sun, who's the Asian. And mm-hmm. I was the only woman, and I think I was there as the feminists, all right? I mean, there, I had to go and figure out my racial identity. I mean, I knew uh, my racial identity, Mm -hmm. but it it was also during the 1990s. I mean, I was not only a founding member of CURRAMP in the 1990s, but Kwok Pui Lan asked me to do a paper uh, for the AAR on my identity and national politics. That was the first time I was able to reflect upon my Asian Americanness. What year and was that, do you recall? That John... was 1994, uh, because it was a, it was also in Chicago, mm-hmm. which is my hometown. Right. And so it was from that point on, oh, oh, and then, you know, I got involved with Pan Autumn because yes, of Queen Lion. Yeah. And so it was, in fact, it was 1998. Kwak Pwilan, we were, we were at a penautom meeting in, in Toronto and Kwak Pwilan passed around this mimeograph sheet and was primarily for graduate students to have an interim, two-year interim position of studies in feminist liberation, theolo- directing studies in feminist liberation theologies at EDS, at Episcopal Divinity School. Oh and so God. that's where... I said, this is the job for me. I mean, I left a tenured full professorship. I had a house and everything, sold my house to go for an interim two year position because this was where I knew I was supposed to be. You know, the land Um, to get the pearl. Yeah, really. So, Episcopal Divinity School hired me as a full professor, tenured. I was part of one of the most progressive anti-racist, anti-oppression schools in the nation. So, I mean, it was God's grace, basically. And it was particularly at, because the EDS was such an anti-racist place, I, I really got involved in studying what anti-racism was when I moved to EDS in 1998. And so that's where it took off, you know, my Asian American interpretation of the biblical text. And critical consciousness. Yes, definitely.
0: And you became colleagues with Kwok Lan, which always which yes, helped. right, definitely. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. I want to note for those who are listening, you might we we've mentioned the word Pan Autumn, and you might wonder what what is that. So it's this acronym. Uh, P wait I always get P A N A A W T M, which stands for the Pacific Asian and North American Asian Women in Theology and Ministry Group. It's always a mouthful, <laughs> but that's what you're referring to when you mentioned pan autumn. And earlier, we also talked about currump in the SBL um, committee for underrepresented ethnic
1: minorities. a uh, C- uh, committee on underrepresented racial and ethnic minorities ethnic in the profession. Profession, yes.
0: yes. And I want to note that I was a grad student. Oh, and actually Kerm I, I joined, I started going to the lunches every year since I was yep. an MDIV student. And Pan also, I think, since I was an MDIV student. And it was, or a PhD student. And so these both Karemp and Panam were very formative for me, um, along with ATSI, Asian Theological Summer Institute, um, Wabash, oh. Apari. And you might wonder what, what is that? Apari stands for the Asia Pacific Americans Religions Research Initiative. Etc. So I just want to name that because you're involved in all of that.
1: Well, which pen autumns were you at? Uh, I was at, was it in Boston or was it in, we met, um, it in,
0: we met at one in Atlanta.
1: Oh gosh. That was, it was actually, cool, yeah. that
0: was and we, I, there. I learned about you as being a horseback rider.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. And
0: a very good dancer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and also you helped read uh, uh, my dissertation research proposal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which
0: I'm very grateful for your feedback. Yep.
1: Thank you. You know, yep.
0: sometimes we need feedback and we need support that's not just within the institution, but as women of color, as Asian American, we often out in adjacent spaces, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's so vital uh, mm-hmm. not only for networking but also to survive and to be equipped and to support one another, not just for a year over the course of many. Oh, definitely. So,
1: I never had any of that in my graduate studies, and. Um, I would say when I tell students, I get involved with Wabash, get involved with SBL, you know, get involved with uh, Pan Autumn and network because you need that support. I mean, because I knew I did not have any of that support. I mean, the FTE, you know, oh, yes, scholarship, for a scholarship for the theological stuff. exploration. Yep. I mean, and all the Wabash, Wabash is for Asian Americans. For Latinx, for African Americans, you know, I mean, that did not exist in my day. And I I tell students, get involved, get involved. I mean, that's why I was very, I told Waja, you need to get students coming to the current lunches. Because he had never been to a current lunch. I said, oh, how is that possible? Yeah.
0: So, yes, SBL, that current is part of SBL. Yes. Mm And we, you know, you were also involved, were you also involved in the uh, Asian American, Asian and Asian American hermeneutics?
1: Oh, I was one of the founding members. That's, that's, that's what I, I, yeah, I, no, I, I, I was, I, I actually wrote, I actually wrote the proposal, you know. No. I should also note that Dale <laughs> was one of the founding
0: members of the Asian, Asian American hermeneutics yeah. section for the SBL.
1: I was on it for, I think two or three years, I can't remember, but I was on it for a couple of years, yes.
0: And I'm I'm one of the co-chairs along with Sharon Jacob today.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Gosh, you know the impact, the legacy carries on, Gail. Okay, all righty. I'm very indebted to your pioneering work, as many others are in our field. You talked about how it was when you went to Episcopal Divinity School. That's when your explicit reflection and racial ethnic consciousness as an Asian American Uh, started to really rise in you Mm -hmm. and be expressed in your scholarship and teaching. So can you tell us about how your Asian American identity, and and you could couple that with your Catholic identity, how your social location impacts the way you interpret the Bible and maybe offer a specific text as an example?
1: Yeah, sure. Now, I mean, as I mentioned, I I grew up, you know, as a, a Chinese American female living in the slums of Chicago and the structure of my family was very patriarchal. My father was at the top and uh, then my mom and then the 12 kids. And so f- the female gender and lower class status and my Chinese American identity are very much part of my, part of my identity. So I, I cannot separate my Asian Americanness from my you know, femaleness from being you know somebody who grew up in the slums, but it took me a long time before I realized how my asian Americanness ness deliberately affected my scholarship, okay? I mean, I was a feminist okay. before I became, I mean, I, I, I was involved in teaching a course in women theology and literature, uh, women in the biblical world. So I was a feminist before I became an Asian-American biblical scholar, all right? But, you know, when I thought about that, I was following the field of biblical studies itself, all right? Mm-hmm. Uh, biblical studies, Itself was primarily white male, basically, and historical critical. All right. But they started to acknowledge, you know, the, the I mean, so you have Elizabeth Schuster Fiorenza becoming president of the uh, Society of Biblical Literature. And then I can't remember, Carol Osiek becoming, then Carol Newsom. And then you had Vincent Wimbush, who became the first. African American or, or a person of color president all right the biblical studies itself was becoming more a little bit more feminist and more racially conscious all mm-hmm. right that, I mean the field itself so I didn't even though I was you know developing feminist and then racial I mean so did, so was the field. Now the best example, I can give of my, uh, was my very first reading of the biblical text as an Asian American. And this was my analysis of the book of Ruth as a model minority and perpetual foreigner. Now, you have to know that I really did not read Asian American studies until I had to do this paper. All right. That was a whole field of studies out there. So Mm. I read a lot of, you know, the history of Asian, Asian Americans in the US. Yes. I mean, I knew about the model minority. I mean, you can't help but knowing about model minority, but I did not really recognize the perpetual foreigner until I realized that, you know, people would say, where are you really from? I mean, where are you from? And then you would say, oh, from, from I live in Boston. You know, I'm from Chicago. And then they said, where are you really from? And that, so that what they're trying to find out was what race or ethnicity I was, okay? And that is the uh, prime examples of Asian Americans being regarded as not being part of the U.S., all right? yeah, right? We're not citizens, all right? And I was reading about, you know, how different, Asian American have that from Japan, Korea, Thailand, Philippines, they all are asked that same question, where are you really from? You know, I mean, because we're lumped together as this perpetual foreigner, not really being part of the US. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing was, again, reading all this history of different Asian American groups and their national immigration histories, I realize we are not taught this mm-hmm. when we're a kid. All right. We are not taught this. And I'm reading a wonderful book right now by Celeste Eng, And it's, a, it's about how young kids are indoctrin- indoctrinated into a white America. All right. A white patriotic America. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are not taught the history of other immigrant immigrant groups who have Mm. come and made a a contribution to the U.S. Oh, is that the book, Our Missing Hearts? Our Missing Hearts, yes, oh. Our Missing Hearts. Have you read that? No, not yet. Oh, but it's not go like ahead two. and read it. Go ahead and read when it. When I'm on sabbatical, I'm going to read that book. Okay, all right. So we're not taught these histories when going up, and we are making some progress nowadays, but there's much conservative white backlash and resistance on what they wrongly call critical race theory. Mm-hmm. That's where my asian Americanness is heading me toward. And again, it's very much wound up with my feminism and my lower class status, all right? How does all of that affect how I read the Bible, you know, from a class perspective, a feminist perspective, a racial perspective, all right?
0: And I think this is why, Gail, you were so able to, your piece on thinking intersectionality, your SBL lecture when you were Mm -hmm. president, is so powerful because, In it, you're interrogating how social location, gender, race, and class, et cetera, um, of biblical authors shapes their writings and how that affects us, our own interpretation and scholarship on these texts. Right. And you talked about in that essay, in that lecture, how you couldn't help but think intersectionality, intersectionally.
1: Definitely.
0: And I think that that also provides an example of how who you are, your social location, how that helps you not think of intersectionally simply as a lens but and a prism, but also as a way of being, like a, mm-hmm.
1: right. Right. a way of being, way of reading. And I do have to say that this that was a long journey, you know, and that's why I respect where people aren't really what I quote unquote there yet. All right. Mm-hmm. Because you have to experience racism, you have to experience sexism, you have to experience Redlining—I mean, which was very much a part of my Mm -hmm. upbringing—to be conscious of that and then interpret the Bible from those from those perspectives.
0: Can you tell us some ways that you stay passionate about your work? You've been at this for a long time, and you've also been very creative and a community builder uh, within the field and within you know among Asian American scholars. So, what keeps you going? What are some ways you stay fresh and creative and energized?
1: Even though I'm quote, retired. All right. I am still very professionally active and I still do speaking engagements like this one. Yes, okay. So I, I still teach a class or two. I taught one actually a couple weeks ago for the Episcopal Seminary of the Southwest in, in Texas. All right. I still do much research and writing. I mean, I'm, I'm currently in the throes of trying to get a paper written for this year's SBL meeting in November. And I have two responses to do. And now what keeps me going? And your book will be reviewed, by the way. (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) I mean, what keeps me going? Actually, it's physical exercise. All right, I do morning dances with some of the seniors here at my retirement community. I do Zumba and Pilates and yoga at the Claremont Club here in the city. I make jewelry and I'm chair of custom jewelry for our annual fundraising event here at Pilgrim Place. And that's actually going to be tomorrow. I'm, yeah, tomorrow we're having a pre-sale. We can't have festival here because of COVID, but we're having a pre-sale that will involve our staff and volunteers who usually come to our festival. I'm also on the Claremont CERT team. Uh, This is a community emergency response team. So I go out into the community to teach about disaster preparedness and what to do in case of an earthquake, fire and flood. And actually I did one uh, just a couple of weeks before I went to Machu Picchu. I did it for the local Chinese community at uh, Claremont Baptist Church. Uh, but when I went there, I didn't realize that they didn't speak much English. All right. But I did have an interpreter to talk about how to evacuate your family and how to turn off your electricity and your gas, you know, and, and water and do basic first aid, first aid and triage. Yeah. So this puts me into the community and gets me out of my head. So, I mean that's what kind of keeps me going. So I do a lot of different things. That you do.
0: Um Gail, last question, it's just a practical one. Is what advice can you help our listeners, whether they're seminarians or lay mem- lay folks, how can you help us delve into a deeper study of scripture?
1: I would say First of all, I suggest getting a good study Bible, all right? These study Bibles provide a good introduction to the different books of the Bible. The notes can help clarify some questions that a person may have. I mean, the Bible was meant to express the religious beliefs that ancient Israelites and the early Christians had about their various relationships. And I mean, various relationships with God and with each other. It wasn't monolithic. I mean, there were different understandings of who God is in relationship to uh, ancient Israel or you know, the different ancient times the Israelites were in their history and with the early Christian community. So these books were developed over a long period of time in different geographical places, and in different contexts, very much different from our own. So in many ways, what people will read in the Bible was very foreign and difficult. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, this will surprise many believers, because I think that we usually get the expurgated version of the Bible in our churches. And the Bible was not meant to be a moral tractate for a good life. I mean, the, in the Bible, men ruled, women were subjugated, raped, and sometimes dismembered. There was a very much of a distrust of the foreigner, particularly when God commands the annihilation of the indigenous peoples of Canaan so that the Israelites can take their land, okay? So all of these things, you need a good guide to help you. All right, a good start is a good Bible, a good study Bible but you want probably to look for good adult educational offerings at, semin- at good seminaries like Fuller, all right? I can speak from the perspective of the Episcopal Church. The church has several year-long programs for lay people called Education for Ministry, or EFM, mm-hmm. and this is a four-year distance learning program in theological education, and it's based on small group study and practice. And it's designed for those who want a deeper learning of their faith. You do want a critical, intelligent study of the Bible, okay? So that's what I would suggest, you know, going into its history, going into understanding the biblical text and its context, and then how you build upon that for your own Christian belief. Gail, I'm
0: so grateful for your time and that you were able to share so much of your experience and your scholarly journey. Thank you for joining us on Centering today. And it's it's a pleasure. You're such a joy and you're an amazing scholar and you've done so much to impact not only the field, but a lot of minority voices who are doing amazing things out there. So thank you. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss how the Bible speaks to us. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.